What is population health? Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science, covers these topics and much more. Join us. Arisha Martinez-Cardoso from the University of Chicago. Michael Esposito from the University of Michigan. And I'm Daryl Hudson at Washington University in St. Louis. Twice a month as we discuss cutting-edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries. Hey everyone, in today's episode, we are coming to you live, or as live as we possibly can be, from the virtual IAPHS annual meeting. We're joined today by a panel of participants who are going to be talking to us about their work on race, place, and health. I'm your host, Aresha Martinez-Cardoso from the Department of Public Health Sciences at the University of Chicago. I'm joined by Adam Lipper from UC Denver, who organized the sessions panel and will be playing host with me today. Hey, Adam, how's it going? It's going well. So good to be here. Yeah, great. Thanks for coming to the podcast. Uh, so tell us a little bit about this session that you organized and who we have with us today. Well, thank you, Arisha. We are fortunate to be joined by three outstanding interdisciplinary population health scientists today doing cutting-edge work on the intersections of race, place, and health. Our first panelist is Dr. Rachel Berkowitz, a Health Equity and Implementation Science Postdoctoral Research Fellow at the University of California Berkeley School of Public Health and Sutter Health Center for Health Systems Research. Dr. Berkowitz's work focuses on understanding and addressing how structures, systems, and places create and perpetuate health inequities, issues she studies via mixed methods approaches. Rachel, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Our second panelist is Dr. Jamaica Robinson, postdoctoral research fellow with the Department of Epidemiology at Columbia's Mailman School of Public Health and the Columbia's Population Research Center. Dr. Robinson's work focuses on understanding and addressing how housing instability and income precarity affect health in vulnerable populations, which she examines also with a mixed methods approach and multi-sector collaborations among academics, medical professionals, and community stakeholders. Jamaica, welcome. Hey, thank you for having me. And finally, we are joined by Ouva Jakobowitz, doctoral candidate in epidemiology at Columbia's Mailman School of Public Health. She is currently investigating how neighborhoods and housing influence urban health, which builds on her work of over 10 years assisting the city of New York align its housing policies with population health equity. Ouva, so good to have you here today. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to the discussion. So it's great to have you all here today. I'm really excited about this panel. I really, I don't study it myself, but I am always so into work on neighborhoods and place and health. So I'm looking forward to learning a lot. Um, to start us off, Adam, can you tell us why you decided to organize this panel session for the conference this year and how you see race, place, and health tied together? Yeah, th those are great questions. Um, so our interest in the intersections among race, place, and health starts with the simple fact that each of these is tied to health and longevity in pretty consistent ways. And this is really clear when looking at something like life expectancy, where, for example, Black Americans have a disadvantage relative to non-Hispanic whites of nearly four years of lost life. 
And this tracks pretty closely to the most common life-threatening uh, morbidities in the U.S., like heart disease, cancer, cerebral vascular disease, um, all of which Black Americans face higher risks than non-Hispanic whites. And for some causes of death, such as maternal mortality, race plays such a powerful role that Black mothers with college degrees still face higher risks of death than their white peers without a high school diploma. Uh, so the data have been pretty clear on the relevance of race and ethnicity to, uh, to health disparities. Mm-hmm. But we also know that where people live matters for their health and longevity. Uh, yeah. We've all heard the saying that your zip code influences your health more than your genetic code. And while we're still working on validating that claim, a growing literature has shown again and again that places shape health. You know, some years ago, there was a famous study from University of College London that mapped life expectancy figures onto a map of the tube, their subway, to estimate the link between neighborhood of residence and longevity. And the authors of this study found that life expectancy along the London tube varied pretty consistently according to the socioeconomic status of the neighborhoods on each route, unsurprisingly. But what's interesting is that, first of all, these findings have been replicated in the U.S. across several studies. And also, uh, the findings can't be explained by personal socioeconomic resources. Mm. So we're left to suspect that things in the neighborhood, like access to health resources, maybe a grocery store, a public park, and exposure to risks like violent crime or environmental pollution influence our health above and beyond our own personal risks and resources and genetic endowments. So all of these facts collide with race which not only influences access to health resources and exposure to health risks on its own, but race also shapes what residential outcomes people and families are likely to have. Research has shown that racial residential segregation remains a stubborn problem in the U.S. and that Black and Hispanic Americans are still routinely excluded from economically stable, racially integrated neighborhoods, even when they have the financial means to purchase or rent housing in such neighborhoods. Research on the health implications of racial discrimination in U.S. housing markets has revealed that Black and Hispanic Americans are more likely to live in polluted neighborhoods than their economically matched white peers. And that when they do move, when they do attempt to upgrade their residential circumstances, they're more likely to move from one polluted neighborhood into another, even when they have high income. Yeah. Um, In my own research, I found that this is costly, not just in terms of the human costs of racial residential discrimination, but also in terms of financial burdens to the U.S. healthcare system. So in short, there are major human and financial costs to maintaining racial residential segregation because where we live matters to our health. And that's sort of what brought us all here today. Yeah, I'm really eager to dig in. And I think this intersects so much with really what's going on with, around us with, with COVID and like persistent residential segregation and race. Um, and I, I think we're going to learn a lot from the panelists today. Yeah, me too. I'm really excited to learn more about our panelists' work. Um, the theme of categorizing places with respect to their health features links each of these studies together in some interesting ways. Um, So I'm hoping that all of our panelists can tell us more about their studies just to get the ball rolling and share how these approaches of typologizing and ranking multidimensional features of the healthscapes of the places where we live uh, benefits our study of population health inequities. Um, So Rachel, I'm, I'm hoping that we can start with your study. You explored preterm birth in the city of Oakland, California. Can you tell us more about your work? Yeah, happy to. Uh, So uh, my study focused on understanding the relationship between neighborhood quality and risk of preterm birth among non-Hispanic Black and African-American women who I'll 
referred to as black women um, uh, in Oakland, California, uh, who gave birth between 2007 and 2011. Uh, so for a little bit of context, preterm birth is defined as birth before 37 weeks gestation, uh, and it's a leading cause of infant mortality and uh, adverse health outcomes throughout the life course. And in the United States, there has been a persistent and egregious inequity in preterm birth risk, along with other adverse birth outcomes, as well as adverse maternal outcomes uh, for Black women uh, in comparison to uh, all other populations, and particularly in comparison to non-Hispanic white women or uh, white women, as I'll refer to for the rest of the conversation. Um, specifically, Black women experience 1.6 times the incidence of preterm birth. Uh, compared to uh, their white peers. And this disparity uh, is largely unexplained by individual risk factors such as maternal age, socioeconomic status, health status, um, parity interpregnancy interval. Uh, and so studies have uh, continued to look farther upstream to identify potential uh, levers for uh, intervention and opportunities to reduce the risk of preterm birth, specifically among Black women, because in order to address the racial inequity, uh, it's not enough to simply identify that that exists. We have to understand um, how, uh, how to address and engage with Black women's risks and experiences and the systems and structures that shape those risks and experiences. And so that's where the study of um, neighborhood characteristics as they uh, may potentially impact risk of preterm birth among Black women uh, becomes essential. As you spoke of already, Adam, uh, Black individuals are still more likely to live in higher risk and lower resource neighborhoods, uh, regardless of individual socioeconomic status. So our study used the Healthy Places Index, uh, which is California-specific. It's a, a multi-dimensional, publicly available index uh, that was created by the Public Health Alliance of Southern California as well as stakeholders from around the country. And they identified 25 indicators across eight domains. So economics, education, healthcare access, housing, neighborhood conditions, pollution or clean environment, social environment, and transportation. And they used a methodology called weighted quantile sum regression to create a combined score that um, looked at the relationship between the combination of these uh, domains and uh, life expectancy at birth that was used to kind of indicate overall health. And so um, I worked with, we worked with uh, data from the California Biobank program linked data set, which includes statewide births uh, maintained by the California Department of Public Health uh, using linked uh, birth information from birth certificate, from live birth certificates and the California statewide prenatal screening program. And essentially what we found is that living in a neighborhood with a higher healthy places index score, so a higher quality, this is a, an asset-based um, approach to understanding place, um, was significantly protective against preterm birth for Black women uh, in Oakland at this time. So specifically, um, we used uh, quartiles to account for uh, nonlinearity. And so um, women who lived in a moderate or high quality neighborhood compared to the low quality neighborhood as defined by the Healthy Places Index um, had a range of 20 to 38% lower risk of preterm birth compared to their counterparts. Uh, and we also saw, interestingly, that 
some of the specific domains, right? So in this case, education, health, housing, transportation, clean environment, and the social environment also had significant relationships where living in a higher quality environment within that domain uh, was protective. Uh, so for us, the takeaway is, in addition to the fact that protective places can be uh, beneficial for preterm birth and, and neighborhood transformation may be an opportunity for addressing risk of preterm birth among Black women. We also know that had we only looked at one of these mm. domains, we would not have seen the full picture because a neighborhood is more than any one characteristic. And as we, we all know, um, those characteristics, those, those fields, those sectors intersect with each other and influence each other. And so without considering a holistic uh, picture of place, you might not fully capture the idea of, you know, what is, um, what we would be doing in community development, right, which would be engaging with multiple sectors. So our hope is that this study contributes to the growing uh, body of evidence, understanding how neighborhood quality can be um, impactful potentially for reducing risk of preterm birth among Black women. Thank you. Yeah, that was great, Rachel. Um, I'm from California, so I was like really excited to learn more about this paper and what y'all are doing. Um, yeah, and uh, it, it's so interesting thinking about like the nuances of neighborhoods, which I think we're going to get into later in this conversation. Um, so let's go now to Ahuva, who I think you can bring um, complement this conversation that we're having because your paper looks at city health rankings, which is uh, in some ways similar. So I'm really curious to learn about the nuances of rankings that you explore in your project, because I was thinking about recently using county rankings for a project. Um, and so I, I'd love to hear your insights. So tell us about your study and what you all found. Yeah, definitely. So um, this was in part driven by the fact that, you know, we see sort of this proliferation of all of these different measures, right? You just mentioned the county health rankings, which I think a lot of people are familiar with. Rachel mentioned a California specific index measure that's used. And we sort of hear these things thrown around a lot. Um, uh, and so the goal or one of the goals here was to really understand what goes into these things and, mm -hmm. and how they're used, sort of like go behind the curtain a yeah. little bit, if you will, right? Because um, it's sort of, we take them at face value perhaps and don't really question um, what goes into it. Um, and so, so as part of that, like uh, just to, to sort of talk about, um, Rachel had mentioned a couple of different terms, and I think that this is uh, maybe useful to clarify some of these things. When we talk about these kinds of measures, um, you know, I, I think that in this day and age, we have such a, a access or availability to so many different sources of data that we sort of don't all know what to do with it at a certain point. And so there are certain levels of data that are used and compiled and organized in different ways. So we have, you know, what people very often call indicators, which are just variables of different things. You know, it could be something like, um, you know, mortality rate um, uh, to speak to sort of what Rachel is speaking to, but it can be a whole uh, range of things. And then um, those sort of fit into various domains. So people could think of that as sort of, um, you know, physical health or, um, you know, uh, housing conditions or things like that. And then those, um, you know, can be collapsed into different uh, indices or composite measures. Sometimes those are put into rankings where they're actually ordered in terms of value. Um, but that's sort of how we get to these kinds of measures. Um, but we're in a place where sort of they're all over um, and, and some are done, you know, by academic researchers. You know, there's actually quite a few that are just, you know, um, 
done by various industry measures. Um, and, uh, and so they're, but they're used in lots of different ways, both again, in academic research, but also on the part of policymakers. Um, and in sort of day-to-day policymaking, you know, uh, people uh, might want to see sort of how, where they are compared to how other places are. Right. Um, and so it became this question of understanding what's the utility in that. And actually, is that even a fair comparison to me? Um, so in doing that, we um, in our work specifically focused on cities, um, although per what you mentioned, um, right, the county health rankings are actually about counties. But this was one of the interesting methodological questions we sort of grappled with, which is that um, these kinds of measures exist on lots of different geographic levels. And so we decided to focus on cities just because in other work that we do, we're interested in cities specifically. Um, And so we looked for a variety of um, city measures that are out there. Um, Although later, maybe I'll get into some of the challenges in that in terms of the different ways people define a city. Um, but, um, and and then also we looked for things to be um, uh, health focused, right? So there's lots of rankings out there, but um, we were interested specifically in those that talk about um, healthy cities, whatever that means. I should also, I guess, add that, you know, this was also sort of questioning what is a healthy city, yeah. right? Um, and, and I think that that's a big part of um, maybe the conversation that we can get into today. Um, and so, Uh, We did sort of a search for um, what's out there, um, and we looked for uh, rankings that, or indices, I should say, that um, are updated regularly. So there are some places that, you know, just issue things as sort of a one point in time measure, but we wanted things that were updated in some kind of regular basis. And also people who had some transparency on their methodology and data sources. Again, because, you know, without being able to explore what actually goes into it, then there would be no way for us to actually, um, you know, understand and compare across. Um, And so uh, we identified, we ended up identifying actually six different um, uh, rankings that we then um, uh, sort of went through and combined. Um, and in doing that, what we tried to do was understand the different sort of domains that exist in all of them. Um, and then we actually, to try to explore some of the um, perhaps limitations or issues around using these, we um, created some uh, understanding of sort of the error, the sensitivity around these measures. So we wanted to understand, right, if one city ranks um, one in one measure and 10 in another, like, what does that really mean? And so we actually, we combined them all into one sort of meta ranking, if you will, and then explored the sensitivity around that and the range around that that existed. Um, And um, yeah, and so the idea around that was to really be able to ask sort of uh, what goes into these things and sort of what the variance around that is. And um, I, I don't know, maybe we'll be able to get into a little bit more of that. Yeah, yeah, super interesting. Yeah. And it's just, you're kind of going behind the machine, right? Which we don't always get to do. And often as researchers, when we see somebody has compiled like a really useful measure that we can throw into our models, we're like, great, but you've done the hard work of seeing like what goes into these and really how complicated that they are. Yeah, we'll, we'll hear more soon. Yeah, I have a lot of questions about uh, your study. I, th- I think it's so interesting, um, and and there's there's a grain of suspicion uh, that uh, that is apparent in the title of your project. So I, I want to unpack that a little bit. But let's let's go to Jamaica first. Um, uh, you had another type of approach to capture the complexity of multiple interrelated features of a neighborhood. So can you tell us more about that and what you found? 
Yeah, absolutely. I should I should clarify too. I think this uh, this study is really still in the nascent project stage. Um, this was basically my co-authors and I sitting around our offices last year started to bat around an idea of how do you, we all worked with neighborhood association studies and looking at effects of neighborhood factors. And the idea of, who would just mentioned this, how do you truly measure or define what a neighborhood is? Because these things are truly complex. There are so many ways of measuring them. Um, if you look in studies, you can look at neighborhoods thought of as community uh, beings, as people perceiving their community around them. Also the spatial area where people are is considered a neighborhood, the culture. Um, we know that associations of neighborhood characteristics, if you look in a epidemiology study or population health study, those are driven, those effects are driven by the region that those studies are performed in, as well as the size of the unit that uh, the, so whether you're looking at, for instance, a census tract, which can be very different sizes in very different areas across the country, or a census block group, or a census block, or a defined neighborhood area that I know they have in some cities. These are all very different. So we had seen a lot of, my co-authors and I had seen a lot of typologies of neighborhoods trying to define neighborhoods as a type rather than looking at separate characteristics of neighborhoods. And we've mentioned already, I think, indices, uh, factor, and sometimes these indices are uh, created by factor analysis. We had seen those. We'd also seen some latent profile analyses comparing two different metropolitan regions. For instance, Seattle and Boston were compared in a latent profile analysis. And these, this is basically a model-based approach that tries to look at whether, given the predictors you put into a model, um, can you divine some kind of neighborhood type or some kind of collection of profiles based on this hidden underlying concept of what a neighborhood is? And so the question, I keep coming back to this conversation my co-authors and I had in our office now over a year ago, I should note pre-pandemic, mm. where we were talking about, could we do this at a national scale? Could we define the types of neighborhoods at a national scale? And then asking whether or not, yes, whether or not we could, and we would try to do this, but then also kind of returning to the idea of, is this meaningful mm. after we started to germinate some ideas about it? So we did, uh, we took random samples. Um, it takes a long time to download these random samples. So we've done random sample batches of 5,000 census block groups or 10,000 census block groups across the United States and download a number of data elements from both the American Community Survey and the National Land Cover Database and threw those into a latent profile analysis to look at whether we could divine some uh, neighborhood types that were similar across the country. And we did find when we looked at uh, American community survey data uh, variables, we, we ended up including in the model included the percentage of residents in that census block group that were driving commuters that, that, drove, that drove to work and the racial composition of that census block group. Once we did that, we did see some differences across the country, but I have to admit, this is still, when I said this is a nascent project, this is still something where looking at this model, the neighborhood types are not quite defined yet. Hmm. Latent profile analysis, it, you also kind of have to step back and say, okay, we have this very highly computerized method to define 
neighborhoods, is this actually useful when, what can you actually say about this health-wise? A lot of latent profile analyses, and I'm sorry if this is getting too conceptual, but they they usually are done for a specific purpose where you're selecting things to go into your model based on their association with some health behavior or health outcomes. So for instance, do factors of, do neighborhoods defined by walkability features such as uh, street connectivity, do those link up with physical activity? Can you actually put them into then a statistical model based on that? So I think the thing we're running up against here is if we can create a neighborhood typology, which we found that we could, we found that there were definitions by driving commuters, by racial composition, by the amount of developed open space, sure. whether this is useful or meaningful because we have a tendency to take this at face value and would this be useful for to have a national neighborhood typography? That's really interesting and, and like a massive challenge. Um, I have to give you kudos for taking this on. Um, I've, I've used some of these methods before and, and know how quickly um, the whole project can unravel. So to take all of these block groups and, and try to come up with a national portrait of a neighborhood healthscapes is, is really a huge endeavor. I want to hear more about it. Um, I, I think some of what you said links up a bit with a question that I had uh, for Rachel. In, you know, kind of all of us are faced with this challenge of finding the right context. And it might come from like a very high level of resolution, splitting out perhaps urban places from rural places and what might be a relevant, um, you know, kind of health feature of rural communities uh, might be completely absent across the urban landscape in the United States. Um, so there's this challenge of kind of, you know, focusing on, quote unquote, the right areas for our purposes. Um, and maybe one of the easiest ways to do that is to just focus on a single place at a time and take a deep dive into what life looks like there and what the neighborhoods are like with respect to health. And, and Rachel, you kind of had a chance to do some of that. So can you tell us more just about the city that you studied of Oakland, California? Why is that a good place to study the relationships that you're interested in here between you know neighborhood um, health uh, profiles and preterm birth, and and what can we learn about the rest of urban America from the case study of Oakland? Absolutely, and I really appreciate um, listening to Alvin Jamaica's uh, studies because I come from kind of so to to put my bias out there. My background is more in place based community development work and local community based uh, public health. And so that has completely, that permeates pretty much how I approach things. And so to the points that were made um, where it is difficult, what does it mean to, you know, craft, um, to try to identify a, an indices for cities across the country or for neighborhoods across the country? That's a huge and impressive undertaking. And so for, for from, you know, building from my own, experiences and the work uh, that I I had been doing, my interest on looking at neighborhoods in, in my case defined by the administrative proxy of census tracts, which is a whole other thing we can get into as y'all started alluding to, um, was the idea that a given characteristic of a neighborhood in one place may have different meaning for the residents in different meaning for the residents within that neighborhood, right? So different populations of residents may move through that neighborhood and experience those exposures differently based on their own um, 
resources and the structures and systems of you know oppression or privilege that they are moving through and then similarly to urban environments as you're pointing out adam you know what works in oakland or what's meaningful in oakland is not necessarily going to be meaningful in la let alone in chicago let alone in um you know new orleans like all these different urban spaces right the same exact measures may mean something different mm -hmm. And so we're, and I know we're going to talk about that a little bit, but that's the the context for which, uh, for me, the deep dive into a single place, the hope is to have more opportunity to engage with that nuance because you can't, it's much harder to do that at a national scale, even a state, even a regional scale, that's yeah. really challenging to do. And then the second, the second reason is the potential for that research to translate or to support action, the work that's happening. So specifically to answer your question now, um, Oakland is home to uh, similar racial inequities in um, preterm birth for black women compared with white women. So um, in the most recent available, I believe um, 2018 uh, data, 11% um, of black women compared to 6% 6, 6 of white women experienced uh, preterm birth in, in the city, across the city of Oakland. Um, so that was one reason that it was, it was a, a powerful place to, to focus this work. A second reason is that there have been significant investments in recent years into understanding and addressing racial inequities in birth outcomes, specifically preterm birth in Oakland. So um, there's an amazing initiative out of University of California, San Francisco, called the Preterm Birth Initiative. Oakland is one of their sites, and their work engages with the potential for, you know, community transformation as well as, um, you know, other uh, and, and, and community-based and collaborative research uh, and work to have an impact on um, uh, preterm pre birth specifically. So that's another reason, well, this can, you know, this is aligned with work that's already going on and can be beneficial. And then on the community development side, there have been and continue to be investments in community development work in Oakland, community transformation work, um, specifically, um, you know, the East, the East Bay Asian Local Development Corporation and California Endowment are two entities that have community development work going on in Oakland. And so our hope by focusing on, on Oakland was that our research could complement existing efforts and provide information to inform community development moving forward as it relates to racial inequities, it, excuse me, in birth outcomes. But in terms of generalizability, what can other urban areas take? For me, it's these, these results are specific to Oakland. Uh, we use generalized estimating equations. So by definition, mathematically, right, it's a, it's, it's averaged across Oakland. Um, and that, that to me is an asset. It's a strength. But other cities, other urban environments can absolutely engage with a similar approach, um, mm -hmm. based on what indicators are meaningful. And, and we didn't even go, you know, I used a healthy places in, index is California wide, right? There is a whole lot more local um, community identified meaning that we didn't engage with. And so, um, you know, moving forward, doing collaborative community development and building on research like this uh, can, our hope anyway, is that that can be helpful. So I would say the findings may not be generalizable to other urban environments in the same way, but the approach I think certainly is and, and the opportunity certainly is. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's it's good to do these deep dives, and I feel like um, 
often as population health researchers, like the bigger the study, the more data we have, like the more excited we get. But I think to your point, the fact that you were able to do this deep dive and then as you were talking about, you can use this to help inform policy and like spread your results um, and disseminate your results, I'm sorry, to outside to audiences outside of academia, I think it's just like kind of the power of the work that we do and certainly the spirit of like IAPHS. Um, so let's shift over to AHUVA um, because now we were like all excited about these rankings and what they can do for us. Uh, but AHUVA, um, in your title of your, of your uh, paper, you suggest some skepticism about this kind of rankings approach um, and that you, um, you say something to use your words that sometimes these rankings can give us a false understanding of places. So I'm curious if you can say a little bit more. And in particular, thinking about like what are at what is at stake if we get these rankings wrong or if we imply the wrong things about these rankings. And so what's coming to mind for me is things like, you know, I'm sure we all pay attention to like things like walkability scores when we picked our homes or apartments or how well our schools are ranked, whether we decide to stay in a neighborhood or sell our homes and move to the suburbs, for example, right? Like these are all things that are happening around us all the time. And, and people really do pay attention to these rankings. So um, what are your thoughts on those two questions? Wow, there's a lot to unpack in all of that that you yeah. just asked. So I'll see if I can take it um, piece by piece. So I think that um, to start in terms of sort of the skepticism around these things, I think that one of the things that I have taken away from this and think about in sort of next steps for this work is sort of how do we create um, or how do we encourage both um, educated creation and educated uh, consumerism mm -hmm. of these measures. Um, and, and because I don't think this is to say, you know, uh, full stop, don't do these things anymore. I don't think that's the intention because I do think that there is utility um, uh, on various scales of being able to do this, if nothing else to um, be able to have one composite measure for things is very often helpful per what Rachel was doing in her work, right? To be able to have that California index measure it is, is useful. Um, but in terms of uh, when people create it and then how people use it, I think there just needs to be a little bit more of an educated perspective on that. Um, that said, when it comes to rankings in particular, I think that there's a lot of um, potential issues that maybe people aren't necessarily aware of, of like sort of the problems with rankings, right? So um, first of all, like rankings are inherently about being relative to what's included in your list, right? So if you rank, let's say, in this case, we took the um, 100 largest uh, U.S. cities, right? But what was interesting is that some of the rankings that we included in our compilation have different lists of what they include. So you have to understand that when you're ranked number 50, well, first of all, is it out of 600? And also, what's actually included in that? Because if you're only including, let's say, you know, uh, however many cities, um, 100 versus 500, then there's sort of that relative nature to it. And so because I think inherently we just we seek to do comparisons when it comes to ranking, right, that's the whole goal of it. What does it actually mean to make that comparison? So one thing that you need to keep in mind is the fact that it's this relative nature of what else is included in that list. Mm -hmm. So going back to this, like being an informed consumer, like 
it's not actually just about where the city or the place of interest, I should say even more broadly than just cities, where your place of interest is in that ranking, but also what's actually included in the overall list of rankings, right? Um, but also part of it is that um, the idea of rankings, it implies this um, equivalent distance between each rank. Right. So we assume that the difference between something that's ranked one and two is the same as the difference between something ranked 15 and 16. But that's not necessarily the case, depending on what actually goes into how we create that ranking. So, right, it's it's possible that if there's some underlying score underneath it, that there could be a 0.1 difference between two of the rankings and then, a, you know, a 10 point difference between something else in the ranking. And so creating a rank of one to a hundred also sort of glosses over that important difference, right? Because again, if we want to say that one city or one place is, you know, ranked higher than another, well, but if it's only on a decimal that it's actually different, then like, so what, right? Like what's the actual goal there of what we're trying to accomplish? Um, so, and then I think that there also becomes this issue of like, again, it just, there's a lack of transparency about what goes into it. And so again, like I keep coming back to this question of what makes a place or in this case, a city healthy. And so there's a range of how people approach this, whether it's sort of exposure or outcome focused or a combination of the two and sort of, right, again, to say that a given city is healthy because of, you know, a a few statistics of the population may be a very different way to think about what is a healthy city versus if it's about, you know, the structural supports for supporting health. So things like you mentioned walkability before, you know, or it could be about air pollution or things like that. And so, again, I think it's it's not necessarily that it's entirely um, needs to be uh, thrown out. I think there just needs to be like a healthy amount of skepticism that goes into it. And I think that then goes back to sort of, I think the second part of your question, which is like sort of the what's at stake part. And I think that that has to do with also who's using it and for to what end, right? right. So I'm going to sort of like skip uh, ahead to sort of where I think maybe there's the most at stake, which is, I think, in the context of when um, policymakers are using this information, um, I, I uh, sort of have seen firsthand over the years, um, part of my job when I used to work for the city of New York was to sort of help people who were not uh, research or data-oriented people understand the pros and cons. I see everyone sort of nodding their heads <laughs> along with this, right? The pros and cons of like understanding, oh, this report that came out, what does this really mean, right? And so I, I think that, you know, um, people can get very excited or upset, right, if they see their city ranked top or bottom on a list. Right. Um, and automatically, you know, there will be a lot of, you know, effort and energy um, put into thinking about how do we change that, right? In part, because this is also very often like newsworthy. I, I mean, we could debate whether it should or shouldn't be, but it's headline, like, right, it's headline material. Sort of like how, you know, the US News and World Report, um, like college rankings are always right. like a big deal. It's a similar kind of thing. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so think about cities doing that and saying, well, we ranked, I could, I could hypothesize, you know, someone could be like, oh, we ranked first. So now like we can be complacent. We don't necessarily, we're, what we're doing is great. Let's keep going. And someone who ranks at the bottom of the list, you know, may take, feel that they need to take action, but it sort of becomes a question of if and what is the right action to take. Um, and so I think that's sort of maybe where, um, 
there's some stuff at stake that needs to be considered. Um, and, and that's why I keep going back to this idea of needing to have informed consumers. And I think that there's a certain responsibility that's needed on the part of people who create these measures to have transparency around it so that the people who use it, use it for the right reasons and in the responsible ways. Yeah, it's really thoughtful. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, I'll echo that. I think that's... Um brings up a lot of issues that we should be mindful of as scholars. I, I think one of the driving forces for coming up with these ranking systems, whether they're ranking counties in terms of their um, health profiles or cities or what have you, is um, accountability and holding policymakers uh, accountable to the health conditions that they allow to proliferate um, among their constituencies. Um, but there, there's a balance between that accountability and empowering communities um, to affect change um, and, to, and, and to themselves uh, hold their elected leaders accountable to the health conditions that they've helped create. Um, so, you know, there's kind of a balancing between, you know, quote unquote, shaming certain places and challenging them to do better. Um, and then creating circumstances where uh, people might be calibrating their residential moves to avoid places that don't fare well in a ranking system. So uh, maybe maybe we should be thinking about the utility of rankings versus categories um, and just give descriptive labels to neighborhoods with different characteristics rather than stacking them on top of each other in, in a rank order. Um, I think to that end, uh, I, don't, I, I don't know, I'm probably not the only one that that thinks this, but um, I think language really matters for this too. And the way that we describe neighborhoods, um, just calling a neighborhood diverse uh, is coded language. That means such different things for different people who might value that or see neighborhood diversity as um, a, a proxy measure for other things that they might want to avoid. So instead of using something like neighborhood diversity, we might borrow a term from somebody like John Logan in referencing global neighborhoods, these neighborhoods that have durable racial integration uh, that, that, that are persistent, that are, that are durable, um, rather than you know, high residential churn and gentrifying neighborhoods. Um, so being mindful of that language, I think, is really key. Um, I, wa I wanted to pivot back to uh, Jamaica, your project. Uh, so I was really interested in the variables that you selected. Um, I'm also interested in your, your selection of the, the geography of a block group, because uh, that's a pain to use. <laughs> so good for you. Um, you're very brave. But it, I think also the block group, um, there might be some power in that because that's a spatial terrain that might feel uh, like a more natural approximation of one's neighborhood. Um, to individual community members. And, and there's, there's a literature on that, what kind of, you know, the, the boundaries of the spatial terrain people identify as being their neighborhoods. But I'm, I'm interested in how our selection of those spatial terrains kind of translates to linking uh, empirical work to community action and kind of democratizing local health movements. So maybe you could speak, these are two issues and we can, we can open up to the, to the entire group, but maybe you could tell us more about your variable selection, like how you decided on developed open space and undeveloped plan as important indicators for your block group healthscapes. And then, you know, what, what, what's the translational part of all of the work that we're doing? How does this end up filtering back to the community so that change can um, be lobbied for? Yeah, I think I can uh, start to, I can answer to part of that, at least there, uh, there is a lot to unpack there. Um, and hopefully the lawnmower in the background won't uh, <laughs> make too much of a difference. But so in terms of, in terms of the variables that we selected, um, one of the aspects of latent profile analyses is the idea of conditional independence of the variables. So you can't just, one of the difficult things, I think we've all been bouncing around this is how complex 
place is from place to place. Everything is interconnected. I, I you know, I was thinking, I think based off uh, Rachel's uh, abstract for this podcast, thinking about uh, structural racism and how many components go into that within a built environment, a social environment. And so when you go back to a latent profile analysis, which says, okay, every variable you need to put into the model has to have conditional independence, meaning that once they go into my, my basic, very, very simple understanding of this is that once they go into the model and you're basically adjusting them for each other, that, that should be, they should be related. Basically they should be uncorrelated except for what's in the model already is, is the basic idea. Um, I read, I read several uh, psychology papers that use this. And so they were going very deep into the theory on this the other day. But with neighborhoods, that's very, very hard to do. So we were with variables, we were searching for elements first of the built environments that were related to walkability. And, you know, it, we were mentioning a few minutes ago who, the idea of rankings and how that's very hard to move rankings from one place to another. And, and that applies some kind of, Adam, you, you were saying the language we, on top of that, the language that we use matters. So the idea of diverse neighborhoods means it's coded a very specific thing. I think walkability means a very specific thing, but walkable neighborhoods cannot be safe. Mm. So getting back to this, we were, we started out with built environment variables, mainly from the American community survey. We started out with uh, the, we wanted to have some aspect of commuting. And we thought, okay, driving commuters, wh whether you have a car-based neighborhood, is that we wanted to do something having to do with population density. Okay, uh, let's do housing unit density. We, we basically went through the past literature that had examined two metropolitan regions uh, with either census tracts or block groups or even perceptions of neighborhoods. Some people did buffers hmm. of neighborhoods and measuring people's perceptions within a buffer area. Um, and we looked at what were the most common aspects that they used trying to streamline their thoughts with ours. With the National Land Cover, da National Land Cover Database, the percentage of undeveloped land and the percentage of um, developed open land, developed open land is parkland basically, is green space. Sure. And undeveloped land, the tricky thing there is that can be either rural agricultural space or it could be forest it could be basically the wild of nobody living there so i guess the answer is based on a priori knowledge and based on our idea of are these things disparate enough where we can put them into a model and they would make sense this is a several month long email chain of <laughs> here we have we have 151 variables that are coming up on the chopping block. Let's go through each variable and talk about our preconceived notions. Also in a working group, let's talk about our preconceived notions of are these built environment variables? Are these social variables? Are they coded? And I don't think we've completed that because I think also we were getting into a conversation a few months back about segregation and how segregation is going to play a role in these and, and what in our model what in our results is actually speaking to residential segregation. As far as the block group goes, I think one of the, the things about translational 
translational aspects that's I have mainly seen census tracts used. I don't know about the rest of you, but I mainly see census tracts used as the neighborhood proxy when I'm looking at translational research or uh, neighborhood units that are included in electronic medical records or on surveys. Census tracts, as I, we've been dancing around, can be different sizes. Block groups can be too. Block groups may be more representative of the spatial size of someone's neighborhood, um, but they're, they still are allowed to vary with population size of the area. So it may be that a rural block group, I know that, for instance, I was running some models in uh, the Seattle Puget Sound region. There are some block groups out on towards the Olympic Peninsula that are gigantic. Um, so I'm not sure if this is really answering your question, but I think one of the things is getting, uh, we chose the block group because it was more representative of the neighborhood size. Admittedly, the original proposal that one of my co-authors proposed was wanting to do blocks, census blocks, which are not based on population size. As far as translation, I think that is something to keep in mind because would this actually be useful for a population health study? Would, would a neighborhood typology or ranking, is it actually useful how are people going to take this at face value? What are people going to read on this? And how is this? Uh, how are these findings communicated? I think it's important. I think the thing that we keep thinking about is how can we best inform policy and better inform interventions? But right now I have to admit, I don't know the direct line of translation from the work that we're doing on the methods side, going back to filtering into communities. And I also started out in community-based participatory research. So I, I started that way and went very epi methods. So that's something I tend to keep in the back of my head all the time. Yeah, I, I'm glad that you brought that up though, because I think um, when it gets to the point of translation and converting findings, not just to a publishable paper, which we all like that, but um, there's kind of the question of, so what? Like, how does this inform culture of health and how does this empower communities to self-advocate um, and have a deeper understanding of, you know, where they are in the creation of losing and winning neighborhoods? Because uh, these resources are disparately allocated across the surface of a metropolitan area. And, and people have a hard time understanding that when they're not able to see from far away where their neighborhood, um, you know, stacks up relative to others. So I, I think that's an important part community advisory boards can be pretty instrumental in doing that and making sure that we have a language check before we start, um, you know, sharing our findings with the world. Um, an another, you know, Im implication of just, just the idea that neighborhoods are relevant um, to our health outcomes, our longevity, and that access to uh, desirable neighborhood mediated resources is inequitable. That informs the question of what solutions we have available to us. And when I think about this, I like to think of the thing that maybe we do tomorrow uh, to, to, to begin mitigating suffering of people who are um, in neighborhoods that have been forgotten but also the long-range uh, set of options that we have to uh, affect bigger changes. So I'm, I'm hoping that Rachel and Uva, um, you can maybe build on these, you know, thinking about uh, findings from studies like Rachel's to suggest benefits to living in certain types of neighborhoods and risks associated with living in other types. What solutions should we be focused on to ensure that the places people live in are healthy? Um, Rachel, can you kick that off? Very happy to. Um, so I... When I when I think about this very important question, because we should all we are all thinking about translation, right? We, we're all doing this for change. Um, I think about kind of like what what you said, Adam, in terms of language matters. And there was a recent um, 
health affairs blog, it's fantastic, by doctors Boyd, Lindo, Weeks, and Macklemore called mm -hmm. On Racism, Racism, a Standard for Publishing on Racial Health Inequities. I'm seeing head nodding. So um, strong rec if anyone hasn't um, read it, but talking about calling it what it is, calling it racism and recognizing that. So where people live and how places are ultimately ranked, they're not random. They are deeply, they are the result of deeply embedded historical and contemporary manifestations of structural racism, not only in terms of, like you said, forgotten neighborhoods, neighborhoods that have suffered uh, generations of disinvestment, but also um, what places are being invested in now and why and who gets to benefit from those investments. So when we talk about um, gentrification, we are talking about community transformation that is not necessarily benefiting those who who had been able to, had been living in that environment. Um, and uh, focusing on it, development without displacement or investment without displacement, to me, that's what I would uh, want to focus on today, tomorrow, and always, and recognizing that um, kind of taking, borrowing from Froelich and Potvin's, you know, vulnerable populations approach, right? Focusing on um, populations that because of structural racism and the intersections with sexism, ableism, um, other, you know, xenophobia, other um, axes of oppression, right, who are at a higher risk of risks, not just for one outcome, not just for one one um, disease or health condition, um, but are, but are at, at risk for compounded risks because of structural racism as a foundation of our society. Um, so prioritizing um, development and um, community transformation, not only to benefit those communities, but also in, in driven by those communities. So, so you, you mentioned community advisory boards. I think that's the other incredibly important side of community development work uh, to develop without displacement is that the residents of those neighborhoods are driving the changes and are, are, are um, their perspectives, their experiences, and their expertise are um, centered. So that would be my, that's my long answer to your short question, but that would be my <laughs> um, a development without displacement and intentional community-driven transformation. That's great. It, it was a short question, but in fairness, it's a complex one. So I appreciate your response. Aufa, uh, what would you say? And, and, and I'm wondering, you don't need to speak to this, but I'm just wondering if anybody sees a role for uh, residential mobility programs, a la moving to opportunity, et cetera, for um, responding to neighborhood-based health inequities. Oh, I don't know that we have time to discuss all of that. Um, but, but what I will say, um, and I don't know if that quite answers this part of your question, but to sort of build on what Rachel was saying, I think that part of this is also, we need to be asking the question, healthy for whom? Um, and I think yeah. that there's this idea that we just assume that it's uh, equivalent across the board, um, but I don't, I, I think all of us would agree that that's not actually the case. And so I think that um, there needs to be both on the research and on the policy side questioning about um, what that what that means and the populations of interest, right? I would say like in reference to these rankings, like it's sort of a, the assumption that it's sort of this, you know, one note kind of thing about health and, and the population that we're talking about. But I think, you know, if we were to, uh, you know, uh, stratify that by different subgroups within a population that could look very different. Um, so I think that that's something that needs to be focused um, on especially.
Yeah, that's great. You know, one of the things that we wanted to really talk a lot more about and, and didn't because we're up on time is just really thinking about there's this assumption that all these rankings work equitably and equally for everybody. And they, in fact, don't. A lot of my work is on Latinos and we find that when Latinos are segregated, right? Like it's actually really great for them because these segregation measures actually are capturing very different things. Um, and so there's a lot of nuance. Um, but before we go on like that long, long tangent, um, to just to wrap us up, this was like a super interesting conversation. Um, I recognize that you all are all, all early-ish scholars and I applaud you for all of your fantastic work because like this is all very hard stuff. We really um, got to see how, you know, the sausage get made, sausage gets made. And so it's really great this conversation. Um, the next 30 seconds or so, um, I would like all the panelists to go around and just share what would you like to see more of in the next wave of research on race, place, and health, and where do you think kind of the next wave of work is, is coming? Um, so let's have Jamaica, why don't you start? 30 seconds or so. Um, I'm going to say time. I, ah. I think about this question is that a lot of the, so the latent profile analysis, which I was talking about is part of my project, but a lot of our projects rankings have to do with taking a cross section in time, right. a snapshot of the moment. And if we're dealing with the idea of race and place and how those affect health, it makes sense to encode the fact that we need to take into account that structural racism, that segregation, that all these things are time dependent in and time compounding and how they affect health. And I just think uh, I'm partially stealing from a uh, presentation that I heard last year at SER, actually, where John Pamplin brought up the idea that we need to start thinking about time when we measure race. Yeah, that's I think cool. that's really important. Cool. Um, Rachel, how about you? Um, this is probably going to come as a big shock, but I would say, you know, more collaborative research that's, you know, brings in um, residents uh, mm -hmm. as a part of developing uh, what does it mean to be a healthy place and uh, to Ahuva's point, right, recognizing, you know, where, when, actually to, to Jamaica and Ahuva's point, where, when, and for whom place matters, which is a title of a socio sociological paper by Sharkey and Faber. So yeah, I would say more nuance and more um, locally driven uh, and community collaborative work that that can then that approach can be done at scale that can, approach can be done across communities cool yeah great Ahuva, how about you last thoughts so um i think that you know as um health researchers we tend to look um, very often a little bit more downstream in the processes that are happening um, that result in various health outcomes. And I think I have always thought, but especially lately, have felt very strongly that there's a need to really go far upstream um, and look at the various structural and historical, to Jamaica's point about time, stuff that is really shaping these things. I think when we're talking about places and the changes that happen to places, um, we can't just look at what the results of that are, but we really have to understand the like deeper structural causes of those things. And so that's where I think some of the focus needs to go to. Yeah, great. Adam, do you have any closing thoughts to wrap up the panel? Um, no, this was excellent. I, I would just echo uh, Rachel's comments about involving the community in our work. That's a great opportunity to write um, consulting uh, payments into our grants and, and pay the people for their for their localized knowledge. Um, and I would just 
plug uh, uh, um, Dan Fagan's excellent book, uh, Tom's River, uh, to reach Ova's point, a really great deep dive into sort of like the business of placemaking and, and how we create winners and losers and uh, healthy and un unhealthy neighborhoods. But this is a great discussion. Um, many thanks to our panelists. This is fabulous. Yeah, thank you, everybody. This is a super interesting conversation. And thank you to Adam for organizing all of this. Uh, to our listeners, please continue to join us for these really in-depth conversations. Although we can't be with each other in person, we're hoping that some of these virtual conversations will add to the IEPH virtual conference that we're having this year. See you next time. Thank you, everybody, for being here and sharing all of your amazing, brilliant work. <laughs>